0: from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley.
1: Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, Director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a Berkeley faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Anne Nesbitt of the Slavic Languages and Literatures and Film and Media Departments, discussing her book, The Orphan Band of Springdale. She is joined by Kristen Whistle of the Film and Media Department and Whistle's daughter, Isla Hager.
2: So thanks to everybody for coming. Um, I thought I'd begin just by describing the plot of Orphan Band of Springdale very quickly and then letting Anne read the first few pages, first couple pages, so that you can get a sense of the really remarkable sort of narrator's voice that uh, she has, um, but I'll, and also just sort of set the stage to give you some context for understanding what the, the book is about. So Orphan Band of Springdale focuses on uh, an 11-year-old protagonist named Augusta Hoops Neubronner, um, who uh, is fleeing New York with her father, who was a labor organizer. uh, And she finds herself on a bus, alone, headed to Maine to live with her grandmother, Hoops, who runs a home for orphans. And her grandmother and her aunt live there with um, six or seven other children, um, some of whom are orphans and some of whom only seem to be orphans. Um, And so I will leave it there and allow Anne to uh,
0: read the first few pages. All right. And I want to welcome everyone here and just say how grateful I am to Kristen and Isla for for coming for the stereophonic questioning, it's absolutely exciting for me. So the first chapter is called What Happened in Portland. Gusta Neubrenner hadn't expected to be on a bus in Maine when she lost her father. She hadn't expected to be sitting alone scrunched up next to the dark blue coat of a woman she didn't know, or to have her French horn case balanced between her ankles, or for the weight of a night's worth of not sleeping to be pulling at her eyelids and making her mind slow and stupid, just at the moment when she needed to be even more alert than her usual quick, quick brain self. Things never happen the way we imagine them ahead of time. Sit here, her father had said hardly a moment ago. They hadn't meant to come late to the Portland Springdale bus, of course, but they'd been riding buses all day and all night, New York to Boston, and then waiting in Boston, and then Boston to Portland, and then in the waiting room here in Portland. And the truth was, they must both have nodded off, even her father. That must have been what happened. So then there was a hurry to the bus and other people already on board. And her father had pushed her scruffy suitcase onto the rack above her head and said, sit here. So she'd done so, next to this woman with the scratchy blue coat. And then he had said something else, something urgent and hard to hear, and dashed right back off the bus again. Why? He'd said something. So it must have been an explanation, had he gone to grab a cup of coffee. He was tired out. They were both so tired out. And he did like the bitter taste of coffee, but coffee wasn't worth risking missing their bus, was it? Gusta took a ragged breath and squinted toward the front of the bus, willing him to come bounding up the steps again. She would know him anywhere, just from the way he moved, with impatience like springs in the soles of his feet and his shoulders always tense, ready to push boulders aside if boulders appeared. Hurry up, Papa, she told him. Two men did come swimming out, swinging up the steps then, but neither one of them moved like her father. Their eyes looked like mysterious dark pools to Gusta. They stood at the front of the bus, looking at all the tired people sitting there, waiting to be on their way to Springdale, and they said in terrible, hard voices, August Neubrunner, which was Gusta's father's name. And then they started moving down the aisles, looking at all the men who might be August Neubrunner, And as they brushed by Gusta, paying no attention to her because she was just a scrawny 11-year-old girl tucked up next to a woman in a blue coat, she saw that the dark pools were actually dark glasses and the men were in uniforms. And that was how she knew the thing they'd been dreading and expecting all these months, even years, was actually really happening. Not in some shadowy future, but right now, for real, in 1941. Okay, hey, so um, if any of you have read
2: uh, Ann Nesbit's previous book, *Cloud and Wallfish*, you'll know that both of these books begin with her young protagonists um, being sort of whisked away in vehicles um, that are speeding her away, uh, speeding her protagonists away from everything they know, from home, um, from the very stable identities that they get from uh, home and parents. Towards a new place uh, that's unfamiliar to them um, and where they are regarded as strange and even foreign. Um, and it's a it's a kind of very unique way of starting off a book, I think, because it's almost as if the reader is grabbed by the collar and dragged onto that bus and plopped down onto the seat next to the woman in the scratchy coat. So um, my first question to you is: why do you begin these books? Um, in motion, in kind of panic motion, um, and in this case, why um, uh, do you begin with Gusta and her father in flight, and why 1941?
0: Okay, um, so the why do why start in flight? Partly that's because of something I remember hearing in a graduate seminar. Uh, it's like it was uh, I think it was Russian literature or something back back long ago, and I had this very unforgiving and demanding professor, and every time you turned in a seminar paper, he would come back to you, and he'd say, well, I think really you should have started on the last page and gone from there. (laughs) So there was always, you know, so I was very hyper aware from the academic side that most of what we do in the first pages of things, most of our introductions and so on, you know, they, we need them when we're writing drafts. But eventually, they have to go. And as someone who you know, grades papers now a lot, I see that too. So I see that as a practitioner of um, writing openings and also someone who reads a lot of other people's openings. So of course, that's true for fiction as well, that you want, you want someone to, to be in, on the journey with your character um, right away. And both of these characters, as uh, Kristen was pointing out, are being plopped into a completely new worlds. So the book before this was called Cloud and Walfish, and it starts with a kid being picked up at elementary school in Virginia and um, being told, "Well, he always thought his name was Jonah, but I mean Noah, but it's actually Jonah, and his birthday's different. And by the way, we're going to the airport. We're going to be flying off to this very strange place, which turns out to be East Germany." In nineteen eighty nine. Okay, so his life is completely changed. And here we have someone who thinks she's traveling with her father who's gonna drop her off at her grandmother's orphan home, and the father is on heading on his way, trying to escape the country um, via Canada. He's a sort of Harry Bridges character, so he's a labor organizer trying to escape um, the increasingly Oppressive laws about that, and he comes from Germany and is a communist, and so he does not want to be deported uh, in 1941 back to Germany. So, and she suddenly finds herself having to um, be, uh, find, finds herself being dumped onto this bus and then dumped into this world she didn't know, the place run by her grandmother. So, why 1941? This story started as, um, as a family story. My, uh, my mother came from Maine. Her family came from Maine. Um, and it was you know, the hard scrabble inland, rural, farming part of Maine, right? No ocean in sight anywhere. And we used to go back to the farm in the summers always. And we'd be, like, driving along to the place where we set up our tents. And my mom would always point to this sort of ramshackle large building on the side of the road. She'd say, oh, that's the orphan home I lived in when I was a kid. What? Yeah, that's the orphan home my grandmother ran um, where I was sent as a kid whenever things got bad in my family. And then time passed. and. and my mom, when my mom died, but I started thinking, you know, what was actually what was that story all about? And I started digging into it, and indeed, it turns out you can look in the census records and so on. You can find that there was my great grandmother ran this orphan home, um, and my mom used to go and stay there when things were bad. Uh, and, so, and, there was, and it was all to, to cover up a family secret, right? Um, there was a child born to an aunt, and, uh, and so that they didn't have to send the child away, they called the child an orphan, and then they brought in a whole bunch of orphans to disguise it. And so for decades, they ran an orphan home in order to keep this child, who did not know she was not an orphan, right, to raise her up. So that was the core of the story here. And then when I was thinking about what date to set it in, so my mom's roughly the age of Augusta in the book, maybe a little little younger, because she was born in 1933. Um, But I was thinking, what date would be good for fiction? And I thought, oh, well. It's southern Maine, so the fair is going to be a big deal. I, that was all, every time we went there, all summer, everyone was always preparing for the Acton Fair, county fair. And then that always happened right after we left, so we never got to see the results of the preparation, but we heard about it all the time. So I was like, oh, well, any book set in Maine has got to be all about something to do with the fair. And then I thought, okay, so that means I'll do it, the, I can't do it during the war because I knew that during the war they hadn't had the fair. So I said, I'll do it the year before we join the war so that there's still a fair, 1941. So I chose 1941. Then I went and um, worked in the Sanford Springville Historical Society's archives and read through the entire run of the Sanford Tribune from 1941 and by gum. There were so many interesting things going on in the year 1941. We'll get to some of those. But the irony is that when we got to August, suddenly there was this notice that the fair was canceled (laughs) because a New York outfit was being brought in instead to do vaudeville, which they spelled V-O-D-V-I-L. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and clearly, there had been some uh, under-the-table financial transactions betraying the people of York County, Maine, in 1941. So that actually, so instead of having an actual fair, I got to work in a betrayed fair as a little bit of a plot point here. But I, but the 1941 I chose because it was before the war right before the war. So I thought it'd be interesting to see what is happening as you're heading towards a war you kind of know is coming. Um, and I wanted there to be a fair, but there wasn't.
3: Okay. OK. So when you are writing your novels for middle graders, how do you get into the mind of an 11-year-old protagonist? And how do you understand the way that 11-year-old sees and experiences the
0: world? Right. Um, that's always a, that's a challenge. But you know, it's not as big a challenge as, as you would think, right? Because I think inside myself, I'm pretty much the age of my <laughs> characters in these books, which is why I ended up, you know, when I first started writing novels, I thought I was going to be writing sophisticated science fiction for grown-ups. Um, and somehow, you know, everybody would read those manuscripts and they'd say, not sophisticated enough or something like this right but when I um, when I wrote my first book for kids it was like falling into place and I think the thing is I don't write simply as like my 11 year old self because I know what I wrote when I was 11 or 12 and it was different (laughs) it sounded quite different the thing that I'm always trying to do is to respect the perspective of my protagonist and also have these other points of view. So I tend to have, there tends to be a narrative voice that is a little bit, that's not exactly the same as the perspective of the character. And I like the feeling of that interaction. Mm -hmm. So Anne. um, Again, here's
2: a, another similarity between Orphan Band and Cloud and Wallfish is that um, you you sort of plop your protagonist down um, at moments of real kind of historical change. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this book, um, the Alien Registration Act comes up, right. um, anti-German sentiment um, in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, there are references to the labor movement um, and to the Depression. Um, and so one of my questions is, um, you know, all of these things are sort of integrated so well into the kind of the story of Gusta mm-hmm. and her family, um, her, her mother and father, but then the story of Springdale itself. And I'm just wondering, why do you choose these, these moments of radical change mm-hmm. um, uh, as a kind of context for, you know, a, an 11 or 12 year old is experiencing radical change themselves too. They're... no longer children, but not quite adults, and your protagonists are learning how to become themselves. Um, So so there's that question, these kind of historical moments. And then also, how do you do that so effectively, bring together the broader historical context with these smaller stories?
0: The answer to the last one is that it never starts effectively at first. It starts, there's always a certain... Brutal montage aspect, where you've got these different things that you're trying to corral and make speak to each other um, in your story, and so uh, whatever works is the result of, you know, 12 revisions or right. something. But but I do care very much about those historical moments where you where things are changing. As I say to students when I go to visit schools, um, guess what, guys. Like Noah, who who gets dragged off to East Germany, and it turns out to be 1989. Um, Like Gusta, who's suddenly in Maine in 1941. You too are living in history. This is this time right now. It's it's history, right? Uh, For all the you know, good sides and bad sides of that. Um, What does it feel like when you are of an age where, as I remember? being 10, 11, and 12, um, that was a time where you always felt like everything meant being peeled out and being plopped into something where you didn't know all the rules, and you didn't know how everything was working, and you could tell that there was all this stuff going on in the air all around us. When I was that age, it was Vietnam, um, the peace movement, all this, but you definitely had this incredible sense that everything was, all these things were going on, these big things, and you were trying to kind of catch up with that. But you were also always being thrust into a new world just by having a body that was changing and feeling like you know you used to be able to get along with these kids, and now you're it's the next grade, and, and what are these conversations like now, and so on and so forth. And so that disorientation is something that we experience in our lives again and again and again, but also um, in moments. In historical moments, and then there's this kind of aspect of I was told not to hit the table because it will ruin <laughs> the mic, ruin but the sound. Boom, boom, boom. But that um, it's so important for kids to read about history. Uh, that's something that gets really shortchanged, generally speaking, in school. I don't know if that's still true, but when I was in school, it, we didn't really go very far, like how, where would you say you've gone up to in history?
3: Ancient Islam and, <laughs> okay. right,
0: yeah. 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 so that's great, but.
2: Not much in the 20th century. Right? <laughs> and Nothing in the 21st. Right,
0: yeah, so, right, so I'm going to talk to kids in schools at, about the Cold War, you know, 1989, East, you know, the, what happened after the Second World War, or what about nationalism? What about you know how have we treated immigrants um, over the years? And and of course nobody has had any of this, but they're really interested in it. That's the thing that's that's very encouraging to me. Um, kids are really interested in those things. So for instance, in Cloud and Wallfish, every chapter ends with what I call a secret file, and then we go into usually more nitty-gritty about the historical context, to be honest. I call it a secret file, though, because we're in East Germany and it's all about spying, and also because studying history is a way of spying, right? You're spying on the past. You're digging into it. It's fun. It's, it's, it's exciting. So I want to get that kind of archival fever going in the um, fifth graders. And, they're re- and so the, the editor, of course, the publishers, were very nervous about the secret files. And when they first showed me the, uh, the way that they would set up the book, they had like, the fictional part of the chapter in nice type, and then, and then they used this like, icky little font for the secret files part about the history. And I was like, no, no, no. We have to, if I had charge of everything, I would have it be in like gold glittery, whatever, because we want everyone to realize this is, this is the fun part. They didn't exactly go with the gold glitter. But they did change the font. And what's <laughs> heartening again for me is that kids have responded really positively to the secret files. Were you irritated by the files or did you no, enjoy them? I liked
3: them a lot.
0: So what was it that you liked about them?
3: I liked having the story and then like having the history part of the story to kind of like connect them both.
0: Uh-huh. Right, because they do they do obviously yeah. like mm-hmm. talk to each other. Yeah. And I think it's sort of nice, at least that was my idea, to have them right there and not have like in the, you know, sometimes in a book, yeah. they'll have like in the back, mm-hmm. there'll be a few educational pages. Yeah, yeah. And I should
2: say that when Isla would get into the car after I picked her up, she was in fifth grade when she read it, she'd close the door and look at me and say, the wall comes down, right? I remember you talking about the wall coming down, <laughs> but does it come down in 1989? Like she was really, really, and she'd read on the way home just to make sure that,
0: OK, so that's the writer's advantage to the fact that history is taught so poorly in this country. is <laughs> yeah, yeah. that there's still a lot of suspense, right? It's right, not right. No, yeah. she, she knew. She will. didn't know if it was going to happen for
2: right, Cloud and Wallfish. In time. In time. Yes, in time for them.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, so I why don't you, you go on to number six and, and ask Ann okay. about.
3: So at the beginning of the story, Gusta's is like this tiny, frail girl with a big French horn. And she loves it, but it's also a burden. She's very quiet and she obeys her father who tells her it's her job to say nothing. But by the end of the book, Gusta finds her voice and she speaks out. But it seems like playing the French horn first allowed her to express herself and find her voice. Why did you choose the French horn and what inspired you to use a musical instrument as a metaphor for Gusta's ability to express herself?
0: Um, Yeah, thank you for that uh, question. I'm so glad you like the French horn. Um, So I was raised to have enormous respect for the French horn. Because because my mother played the French horn, actually. So my mother was, like Gusta, sent off to live in this orphan home. And like Gusta, she came from an incredibly poor family. She went to, I think, it was 11 different schools in her 12 years of before college. Um, Because the family could never pay the rent. So they would just hang out in a town until the rent came due, and then eventually they would move to the next town. So that was her childhood, but somehow she became a French horn player. It's not the obvious instrument for someone who's like brutally poor, because they're expensive, and you have to cart the rent. Someone had to care. Someone had to, had to give her lessons. How did this happen? I will never know, because she's gone, and I can't ask her. Um, but she became. She started playing it when she was younger and she became so good that in the last two years of high school, which were the only two she had in one place, which was Rutland, Rutland High School, um, she was the youngest member of the Vermont Symphony playing the French horn. So something happened there. So the French horn was not chosen randomly, Mm -hmm. but then it turned out, and this is the nice thing about the stuff that you're sort of dealt Then it turns out that it was the perfect instrument. Yeah. Because it's big and brassy, and she's not. Mm -hmm. And it's also incredibly difficult to play, right? So, the thing my mother always impressed upon us was that you had to have these really good lips to do it, and you had to work really hard to build up that muscle control. Um, and she would let us try, and we would completely fail, and then she would show that she still had it, and could make a sound come out of this. So I think making, the fact that finding a voice is not easy. So even though it may be easier psychologically in some ways to have your voice first come through an instrument, playing a French horn is not an easy way to achieve this brassy voice. So you're already overcoming all sorts of things to make it sound. And the other thing that's amazing about the French horn, so when I started writing, then I started, like, I borrowed my mom's French horn from my sister who had it. And I started, like, doing YouTube videos on how to play. And I started talking to the French hornists in my orchestra. I played that kind of stuff. Um, and, and it's so interesting, because French horn is really one of these instruments where you have to know where you're headed, where the, what the note is. Um, you have to sort of hear it in your head before you go because a certain, it, you know, it's not each key is a different note. It's You have to know which, which version, which of the many notes that this configuration can provide you're aiming for. So there's a way in which you have, it's, 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 it's a whole, it's like one big metaphor, the French horn. And also very lovely, and as you say, Um, it's a burden, because it's heavy. It's about one of the most awkward. Of course, I have a kid who plays the cello, but even there, I don't think she suffered as much from lugging the cello around as my mom and Gusta suffered from a French horn case, which really will do you damage as you walk through the world. It's very much her father, too. And it's all about her father. This moral
2: burden that she kind of carries with her to... Yeah. Um, she talks about you know workers comp and she, there's a, a big plot point around uh, around that and to, to sort of do the right thing and in what is it the the clear light of trouble um, we will find right. out who we are and so there's a way that even though he disappears as long as she has that horn.
0: Yeah, she's definitely there in good in bad ways. In good and bad ways. Yeah, because he's a complicated um, character. She kind of hero worships him in one sense, but. But he's also actually abandoning them, right? So it's a mix. He's, he's, he's an idealist, and we know what that's like sometimes for the family. And he was also here a communist, but pretty patriarchal in certain respects as well. Wow. This I knew from local experience <laughs> growing up, I would say.
2: So um, since we t- talked a little bit about music, mm-hmm. I'm wondering, and, and this is sort of um, Kind of introduce uh, Anne's dual careers as both a film scholar and as a novelist. She's one of these ridiculously talented people. Um, so, optics and vision are also um, really important themes in this book. And you sort of got a sense of that in the, in the opening passages that Anne read. Gustus sort of sees the pools of darkness um, and only realizes when the men come closer that they're wearing sunglasses. So, there are all sorts of myopic people. Um, in this book, Um, and vision becomes perspective and vision and seeing things differently Mm -hmm. is a really important metaphor. But there's also pigeon photography Mm -hmm. um, and aviation, Mm -hmm. and there's even the idea that good vision is a matter of patriotism in 1941. Mm -hmm. So sort of bringing your film um, scholarship and history of optics into play here with your fiction writing. Can you talk a little bit about images and optics and seeing.
0: Right, it's really hard to know which comes first, but whenever I ran across something, so when I was reading through the entire run of the paper in 1941, it was striking to me how many of these themes appear there. So they were busy building a new airport outside this little town on some kind of funny It was unclear whether the government was perhaps being swindled by the people who were clearing the land for probably, right? Um, so, And there was a lot of stuff about aviation. And as we were working towards, again, the Second World War, they were trying to um, enlist people to become aviation cadets. There were photographs in the newspaper of these incredibly fancy um, like optometry school scale um, eye devices you know where you lenses and stuff where you sort of look like a cyborg and you look through it and they and they had those machines in town because they were trying to gauge people's eyesight to make them aviation cadets etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, and then I was really fascinated by the um, by pigeons I've always been interested in pigeons and it's a little side light of uh, film history that pigeon photography really was a big thing, and there are these incredible images uh, uh, by a, um, by a uh, chemist named Neubrunner but of, that were taken, he, were taken by pigeons, and some of them you have like aerial views that then have a little bit of wing in them which is my favorite slide of the whole semester for Film History Part One, because what you have there is a pigeon selfie, right? <laughs> <laughs> which is great. But I've always been interested in, um, in the aerial view, and in, in throughout film history, all of those attempts to see the world from a different perspective, right? Which is always a combination of a figurative and a literal thing. It's always tangled up. How we see the world um, does say something about uh, the light in which we see the world, the figurative way we see the world. And I remember being fascinated by that. At, from, from childhood, I would set up little scenes using like Fisher-Price characters and blocks. And then I would try to get down and see it from the perspective. You know, always imagine, what if, what if I were this tall? What would this table look like here? I was always looking at that with fascination. Or lying on the piano bench and hanging my head over so that I could see the whole room upside down. What would it be like if things were like this? And so I think one of the reasons I rejoiced to discover film as a scholarly uh, avenue of study was that we could talk about those things, but all the wonderful, weird ways we see things, which always goes back to that great mystery of, what does it mean to be me and not you, you know? How, how is what my brain is putting together from all this visual information different from what you're seeing? And in this book, we just go to town exploring all these different ways of seeing. Gusta, one of the challenges for me as a writer, and something I really enjoyed, is that she is incredibly nearsighted and only gets glasses eventually, right? Um, That was something that came out of a family story because my mom was also incredibly nearsighted. And they were too poor, as previously described. And so she didn't get glasses until she was in fifth grade. And she said she remembered walking out of the building, looking up and realizing for the first time that there were leaves on trees. She had had no, no idea. And so she was she was just, you know, we all grew into our glasses. But again, as with the French horn, with respect and affection, <laughs> we loved our glasses because they let us see. We had that attitude from my mom. OK, but for a writer, it was really fun to be writing her whole experience of this new place, right? from a nearsighted point of view, but a nearsighted point of view that doesn't know it's nearsighted. I mean, she knows she's nearsighted, but she doesn't know how badly she's seeing, because that's the way she sees, right? And so to write that, and then you get to have the chance to write what it's like when you put the glasses on eventually, what that is like. And for her, from all sorts of perspectives, she's learning about different ways of seeing the world, right? And about all these different people around her who themselves have different ways of seeing the world, and that even expands out to things like bats, for instance, because they're bats. I mean, you know, had I think an early, early draft title of this was "Bats and Pigeons," (laughs) 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 because those are two things that have different perspectives on the world. You have the pigeon, who's always trying to go home, right? And, is, and sees things from an aerial perspective, is always trying to go home. And then you have bats. And I've always been fascinated by echolocation, right? But what does that mean? What would that feel like, echolocation? I remember as a kid being fascinated by that too. And as someone who couldn't see very well, wouldn't that be sort of interesting? That you'd almost have, like, it's almost like your fingers are infinitely long and you're kind of feeling the, the space around you. So. It all gets tangled up. So, Tim, should we
2: open, uh, we can open this up?
1: Maybe we should open up to the group and
2: see if have questions. A few questions, and if not, we have more.
0: <laughs> Alien registration act. You mentioned that
2: your family had a secret, uh, which was behind the orphanage, and I'm wondering how you, I'm assuming you somehow wove that secret into the book, and if so, how did that
0: present itself? Well, um, uh, yes. (laughs) You could request it at your library and see, but. but Is that a spoiler? Absolutely, one of the things that's important here in this story is that her family is just riddled with secrets. So there's all sorts of, you know, her father's secrets, her, you know, the mother and father thing. Um, and then this orphan home is built around a great secret. And you have Gusta, who is trying to kind of live up to what she thinks of as her father's ideals of being forthright and, and, and direct and fighting for justice and all this. And she keeps, like, just stepping into trouble that way because it turns out secrets are complicated things. And sometimes when they come out, you get a mixed result. Like, it might not all be good. So that's something that she certainly runs into in here
1: in a big way. I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit um, what a young adult novel is stylistically like what when you're writing this what what can't you uh, write what is the forms the the idea of the literary that you can't or can do that separates it from um you know adult novels Uh, could you talk a little bit about what that processes, because you were talking about your earlier work and so on. And found yeah. yourself in this one. So I'm really curious about how that process works.
0: Right, that's a super uh, difficult question, actually. Because um, you know what does it, what, what actually, so actually what I write is not technically called young adults. The technical category is middle grade middle grade novel. I don't like that name because it always seems like you got like a B <laughs> 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 minus. I don't know. But There are middle schools. When I was younger we went to junior high but so middle grade novel you know what is that? And you could sort of it's like any of those charts it's all so sewer all over again it's like how do you define something it's sort of you know you can sort of say what it's not but it, then even then um, you can break a lot of those rules. So what is, what is OK to talk about and what is not OK to talk about in these different um, kinds of books, all of those are really flexible boundaries. Roughly speaking, um, those categories have been sort of shaped by Barnes & Noble, <laughs> who likes to file books by 9 to 12 and teen. And so, there's this sort of gulf between what they're calling middle grade, which are the books that Barnes and Noble will file as nine to twelve, and then there's the teen ones where there are more vampires and um, bear chests. So I get, but all of that are these generalizations that have as many uh, exceptions as they do. I'm always doing things a little weirdly, so. Um, I, I kind of push the edge on the middle grade. It's there; These are fairly long and complicated books. Um, so they're what you might call as upper middle grade, sort of me making things difficult for myself, marketing-wise. Um, but usually they're about uh, kids who are in that part of their lives where they are, thinking, are beginning to think about the wider world, having adventures, and, developing friendships that mean a lot. And so what we don't have a lot of of is romance, exactly, um, which might, generally speaking, be more in the YA section. But again, as far as topics go, almost anything will go in any of these, depending on how you do it. I
1: guess I was asking also about form, literary form, style, Um, how, as you're writing this, as a writer, how, what are you able to do and not able to do? Do you find yourself having to think about or hold yourself back or find other ways?
0: Yeah, you know, actually, so I don't ever feel that I'm having to hold myself back because it's always, you're just always trying to do the very best thing you can do and be as interesting with the language as you can possibly be. So, I'm never holding back exactly. Sometimes an editor will come in and say, That ref- reference to the 18th century um, French chemist. <laughs> is that it? really? And I'll be like, Yes, yes, kids like that. <laughs> I'd say, kids like that. Remember how much kids liked, you know, like Madeleine Lengel reference to the mitochondrion or something, and then they go and find out there really is such a thing, even if actually little creatures aren't dancing in it. But okay. So I kept trying to that. Sometimes it would be like there would be little you know references. They'd say, oh, that's too. But the language is pretty complicated that I use. I just do that because I think, I think that's great. I mean, I think kids are ready for language to be going full bore. Mm-hmm. I think kids love real poems, for instance. I used to go into the second grade classroom of my kid, and we'd read Yeats together and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they liked it, right? Because that's, uh, poems are great for that, because there's real language, but concentrated. So it's not so daunting. It's right there, and you can go through it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of pushing back on having to hold back. I think the things that I do think about is I'll say, oh, Nesbitt, you should really make your chapters a little shorter. So I try. I've, that's my goal. My goal is also to make the books a little shorter. OK, I'm sort of failing. But the one that's coming out next it, is shorter so far, a little shorter. And it's about a silent film heroine during the adventure serial craze of 1914. So lots happens, like there's plot and everything. <laughs> <laughs> so I do have some of those. But, but whatever I, whenever I have a goal for things being simple and clear, it's also me having that goal. So it's, the language is actually not going to be. Um, it's not going to be. There's, it's never dumbed down.
2: And you also you also make it historically spe- specific. I mean, yeah. the dialogue is from 1941, and you yeah. don't pull back on that either. I mean, you kind of you are yeah. faithful to the local dialect and the historical yeah, and actually language. there was a lot of
0: research that went into there too. I had this weird so with all, all the research here, a lot of it was triangulating between between like. Research, th- reading things from the time, going things to the time, and family stuff. So on the language, I got I got a bunch of books that were about the Maine dialect in the '40s. I mean, so I went through like read dictionaries of Maine, you know, things that people would say in Maine, and I wrote lists of the ones that I remembered hearing my mother use. So it was like double checking, right? It had to be something that sounded like it would come out of my mom's mouth, and then I would go with but I didn't do I don't I don't try to imitate the phonic structure of that amazing down east um, dialect here because I think that becomes that's always going to fail in some way or other. I'd rather have it be there are touches of the kinds of phrasing and words that um, I remember hearing in Maine or from my mom.
4: I want to ask two things about your process of writing these Mm -hmm. novels. First is, do you have the entire plot mapped out in advance and then you kind of execute it? Or do you just um, start with a character and then see where the writing takes you? Like I've heard some novelists say that they, their characters kind of speak to them and tell them what's yeah. happening next? Or do you have a rough plan and then you end up going in surprising directions? And then the second question is, it, c- when I write academic essays, uh-huh. there's, there's a very super egoic process. I'm, I feel like I'm always trying to satisfy some inner peer reviewer or something. <laughs> yeah. so is writing novels, does, is there a kind of freedom in that that, that is yeah. less super ego driven or, or is there a different kind of super so ego?
0: It's so funny because uh, on the second thing, I, re- I remember always saying, well, the difference between writing fiction and writing academic stuff is when you write academic stuff, you know that everyone reading it is going to be hostile. I mean, that, <laughs> like, they will all be reading it and then most the closest to positive you're going to get are people who are just hoping you don't say the thing they wanted to say in their essay so they don't have to cite you, right, or whatever. Okay, so that's discouraging. That's like a discouraging way to produce things, right? With fiction, you know that the people who pick up the book, some of them, the people who it's really attended for, okay, um, hope they're going to like it. So they're reading it, and they're hoping they're going to like it. That's actually huge. The, the irony is that once you get mixed up to actually, in actually publishing these books, you realize you're writing for the gatekeepers first. And they are pretty much like, <laughs> like the review. You know, they, They're going to be looking for all the reasons they could say, not this one, yeah. or whatever. Um, but if you get past them, you know it's like putting a message in a bottle, some people are going to get that message, and it's going to be the one they needed to get. Now, the thing about writing for kids in the middle grade range is that you almost never meet the real readers. Like you're, you're an amazing exception in my life, because mostly the middle grade students are not the ones who are like writing back or sending emails or whatever. When they got it, and they liked it, and it was a message in the bottle for them, you don't, you'll never know. Yeah. So you just have to. But, but from the ones that every now and then pop up saying, oh, you know, really, you're like, oh, you're speaking. There must be a lot out there. And that's enough to make it a completely different experience than just the academic writing, even though there's all those layers of the superego stuff still going on. Yeah, but then the other thing you said was also really interesting. Oh, plotting. Yeah, so the other thing is I I have a day job. So I teach full time. It's busy, right? Okay. so that means that um, I feel like I don't have the luxury just to, you know, if I have a little bit of time for writing, I kind of have to know what I'm doing. So who knows what the cause and effect are here, but I plot like crazy beforehand. And in fact, I always carry around with me notebooks for the things that I'm working on at the time. These are in different. This is the one I'm kind of drafting right now. Um, this is the one I'm revising right now. And so I just always have this. And if I have a plot thought, then I go in here and then I put it on. That, that doesn't mean, but the other thing you said is exactly right too, because you do all that plotting. And then of course, once you're writing, it, it's like you never thought of this. You know, you're just stumped all the time. So it has to be a combination of planning ahead of time because you don't have very much time to work (coughs) in, and then just seeing what happens. Thank you. Thank you, guys.
1: We hope you enjoyed this Berkeley book chat and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in this series.